Our scripture reading this morning is from Song of Songs, chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Doing something a little different this morning, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, so it's going to be slightly different than the translation in the Pew Bibles. So, chapter 4, verse 7. You are so beautiful, my beloved, so perfect in every part. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come down from the top of Mount Amana, from Mount Sinar and Mount Hermon, where lions have their dens and panthers prowl. You have ravished my heart, my treasure, my bride. I am overcome by one glance of your eyes, by a single bead of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my treasure, my bride. How much better it is than wine. Your perfume is more fragrant than the richest of spices. Your lips, my bride, are as sweet as honey. Yes, honey and cream are under your tongue. The scent of your clothing is like that of the mountains and the cedars of Lebanon. You are like a private garden, my treasure, my bride. You are like a spring that no one else can drink from, a fountain of my own. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Susie, for that rousing reading of God's word. Uh, If you don't know me yet, my name is Mark. I'm one of the members here at the church. They let me preach from time to time. Um, and I have the privilege this morning of preaching out of this love poem. So we're going to do our best. Josh did a great job last week. I'm going to try and follow his lead and not make anybody blush too much. You'll know if I'm blushing. It's one of the gifts of being an albino. Um, <laughs> some of you know my story a little bit. I uh, was a pastor in Chicago for 10 years, and one of the best things about being a pastor is that you get to officiate weddings. And I got to officiate a ton of weddings. I have a good friend who says that the church is at her her absolute best at weddings and funerals. And I think he's got something there. The culture at large, large sections of the culture are somewhat lost when it comes to weddings and funerals because everyone in attendance knows in their bones that the moment is weighty and glorious. And yet for a secular officiant, they're not able to tell the whole story of what's happening. And so it often comes off as shallow or sentimental, and they have to go searching and scrambling to find words that feel weighty enough to capture the weight that everyone is feeling in their bones. But for a Christian minister, that's not the case. Because a Christian minister gets to tell the whole story. And when you tell the whole story, the weight and glory of those moments lands in the room. And I loved getting to do that as a Christian pastor, partly because I got to see up close so much of what I had missed at my own wedding, right? When you're a groom in a wedding, your only goal, you have two goals, don't faint, don't puke, right? And the rest is just going by you, and you miss almost all of it. But officiating wedding after wedding, time and again, it starts to slow down. You start to see the weight and gravity of the moment. That moment in particular when the bride enters into the church and the groom sees her and it is the pinnacle and height of rich, deep desire, especially in a Christian wedding where appropriate boundaries have been put in place. There is a profound longing, a mutual longing, like a tractor beam shooting down the center aisle between these two people, deep desire and want. I remember one wedding in particular, 
standing there looking down the aisle at this beautiful bride, and all I heard from the groom was, <laughs> it reminded me of the sound that I used to hear with my old dog. <laughs> when I was a kid, I had this Gordon setter, and I trained her to sit and stay so well that I could hang a piece of ribeye steak over her nose, and she would just sit there with drool pouring down from her drowls, and she would make that exact sound. It is the sound of pure longing. It is the sound of desire. I want, and this poor groom, I want her. I want her now. This weight, this weight of desire is almost over soon. She will be mine. I got to officiate, I think, about 50 to 60 weddings over 10 years as a pastor. We had a young congregation, much like the congregation here. I saw grooms go weak in the knees. I saw tears fall from faces. I saw faces flush with blood, beads of sweat forming on the backs of necks, and none of it ever got old. That moment never got old. Because it is, without question, one of the richest manifestations of passion and desire in all of the physical realm of humanity. And so what a joy to get to be able to see it up close and participate in it. And our text for today, our text of scripture today, gives that moment its due. We're in the third week of our journey through the Song of Songs. And today's text, chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 5, verse 1, we read a portion of it, centers in on a wedding moment, on the marriage moment. This is, in fact, the very heart and center of the book of Song of Songs. Over the past couple of weeks, pastors Mike and then Pastor Josh have done a good job of laying a foundation for how we are to read this great work of Hebrew love poetry, and they've showed us that we can't read it in the same way that we would read, say, an epistle, a New Testament letter, or one of the Gospels, or even Old Testament narrative. This is a very different genre of writing, and it needs to be read differently. It's Hebrew love poetry, and each of the preceding preachers, Mike and Josh, have quoted Leland Riken. I'll quote him again just briefly. He says that when we read the Song of Songs, we must abandon ourselves to the poetry. Abandon ourselves to the poetry. I want to build on that foundation by pointing out just what kind of poem this is. Okay, the Song of Songs uses a structure that was common in ancient Hebrew poetry called a chiasm. A chiasm comes from the Greek letter chi, or X, and simply it's a structure wherein all of the things that are happening over the totality of the poem are pointing to the center, like an X, pointing to the center from both directions. So if you try to read the Song of Songs like a narrative with a beginning and a middle and an end, you'll wind up quite confused. What this poem actually is in its entirety is an ode to passion, to romance, but all of that is pointing toward the center of marriage, the center of a 
wedding. The whole structure of the poem given to us by God is to point and direct all of our romance and passion and longing toward marriage. God constructed this poem to point us toward the context that is meant to contain all of those deepest romantic longings and passions that we have within ourselves. That's the purpose of the chiastic structure. He's inviting us to come drink deeply of these rich delights of romance within marriage. Now, this wedding scene in Song of Songs, is going to build the drama. It's going to start zoomed out, and then it's going to begin to move in as the drama builds. And it begins building this drama with the arrival of the groom. We read this in Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 6. Who is this sweeping in from the wilderness like a cloud of smoke? Who is it? fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice. Look, it is Solomon's carriage, surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers. A quick note, Susie mentioned this. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, which I find to do a little bit better job of capturing the poetic tone of Song of Songs and other poetic texts in the Scripture. The English Standard Version, which we normally use, in our gatherings here, which is an excellent translation, gets a little bit stuffy with the poetry because it's overly concerned about word-for-word accuracy. And just so you know, there is absolutely nothing stuffy about the Song of Songs. So we punted the stuffy translation for something a little bit more poetic. And here we're given the arrival of the groom. The arrival of the groom at the wedding ceremony along with his entourage, and we're given this arrival in very visceral imagery. They appear on the horizon like a cloud of smoke, it says. It's meant to draw up visions of strength and power like warriors returning from battle. It's a cloud of smoke because of the horde of entourage and pomp that surrounds Solomon as he arrives. The text goes on to describe the beauty and glory of his carriage as he arrives on the scene. And a young woman calls out, calls attention to this amazing scene of the arrival of the groom. She says, you've got to see this. Verse 11, come out and see King Solomon, young women of Jerusalem. He wears the crown his mother gave him on his wedding day, his most joyous Day. Come see this great man, she says, wearing this great crown on this most joyous day. And so the stage is set, the groom is in place. Now behold the bride. He sees her and he begins to overflow with love and praise, starting in chapter 4. You are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth 
matched with its twin. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Now remember, this is ancient love poetry set in the ancient world. Were we writing love poetry today, we might not make such a big deal about our love still possessing all of her teeth. But that was a big deal in the ancient world. That was a rare beauty for each tooth to have a twin. But don't get caught up on the particulars. Gentlemen, if you have a bride in your life, whether one you are already married to or one to whom you will soon be married, talk to her like this. This is how you are to speak to her. Now be careful when you do, because this kind of language has a destination, an undeniable destination. It has a purpose. It means to take you to that destination. So if you are still months away from that destination being appropriate, maybe dial it back just a little bit. Compliment her shoes, for example. I remember when I was in that process of dating and courtship, I had a hard time dialing it back because from the very first moment that I saw my future bride, my mind flooded with poetic verse. I actually remember the moment of seeing Acacia for the very first time more than I remember my wedding day. I mean, a wedding day is just a haze. But I remember seeing her for the first time. I was teetering on the brink of becoming a Christian in college. I was just beginning to consider the claims of Christ. And I went to a Bible study, first Bible study I'd ever attended. And we were just meeting in some normal room in a college campus. And suddenly the room began to glow. That's how I remember it, quite literally. And she walked into that room, and I said, Well, I'm a Christian. (laughs) sort of locked it in. You know? <laughs> 25 years later, still going strong, right? But I remember seeing her. I remember the poetic verse filling my mind. This was a person that I wanted to write poetry about, and poetry like this, specifically about her smile. If you get to know my wife, you will immediately recognize her smile. Now, we didn't start dating right away. Uh, But that didn't really slow me down. Within a few months of knowing her, I was singing to her outside of her dorm room, (laughs) though we were not in any kind of official relationship. Now, you'll recall, I was a new Christian, so cut me a little bit of slack. I had no idea what I was doing. And when we did finally become official, the poetry that had built up in my soul just began to flow like wine. I wrote so many poems that her sister actually composed a song, an original song out of my poetry that she sang at our wedding. I don't remember it, but she did. Um, Here's the point. The riches of romantic passion, the depths of delight that are present in romance, demand poetic verse. They demand it. Gentlemen, write poetry. You say, well, I don't know how to write poetry. That's okay. Plagiarize. She won't mind at all, right? And you're not going to publish it anyway. So go look for words wherever you look for them. Hip-hop, Shakespeare, country music. Gather them, put them together, 
in a way that notices and praises the particular and specific glory of her. That's what the poet is doing here. He has noted the specific things about his bride that he finds lovely. Not generalities about all women. The specifics about her. And he sings her praises. He writes, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. Beautiful in every way. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Come down from Mount Amanah, from the peaks of Sinar and Hermon, where the lions have their dens and leopards live among the hills. He says, you are beautiful in every way. The Hebrew word that he uses there is actually, you have no flaw in you. You have no blemish in you. Now remember, this is the same poet, the same groom, who elsewhere in this poem points out that his love, his bride, has a rather long nose. He also points out that she has over-tanned skin, which was not fashionable in that day and age. He has noticed things about her that the broader culture would call blemishes or flaws, and he says, I want it all. I want it just like that. To me, you are flawless. To me, Even the things that you would hide, I like, I want. Do you know how safe that makes a person feel? To be seen and known in the particulars of their person and to be embraced and to be loved and to be desired. He mixes in right here in the middle of this love poem that's oozing with desire and passion. He mixes in this invitation to her. He says, come with me. Come with me out of Lebanon. Come with me out of those mountainous regions, the borderlands where lions and leopards dwell. Come with me out of that dangerous place where you are now. Come to the good land with me. Come build a life with me. Come do life with me. Here in this marriage poem, we're watching passion and security become one. That's what marriage is. Marriage is where passion and desire meet safety and security, where passion and desire are given a context to flourish in safety and security. This is God's wisdom to us. This is God's design. He is Lord of marriage, and he invites us into marriage as a good thing for us that he has fashioned for us. God is no prude. He made us for passion. He filled us with passion. And he invites us to drink deeply of romance and sexual intimacy according to his design and his order, namely in marriage. The groom says, You have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine, your perfume more fragrant than spices. Solomon is smitten by one look from his bride. His heart is full. He is drunk with love. And God approves. 
he very much approves. Now, here's the challenge in all this. It's a very flowery language, it's a very beautiful vision, very lovely scene. But most of you, I think, know that the kind of electric excitement that romance and desire produces can cloud our vision, make it harder to see. I don't even remember my wedding day, for example. The passion and desire that romance produces makes it harder for us to sense what's real. In fact, there's probably no sphere of human experience that carries with it more temptation to depart from reality and enter into fantasy than the sphere of human romance, sexuality, passion, and desire. Right? The fantasy of pornography is well documented. The harmfulness of pornography is well documented. Pastor Josh mentioned it Last week, even those outside the church recognized how poisonous and destructive that is. Why? Because it takes us into fantasy and so divorces us from reality. It takes us into a made-up world where things operate in ways that aren't true. And it then brings toxin and poison into our real relationships. You can't have a real relationship with someone when you're living in a fantasy world. Okay? But I want to talk about a kind of fantasy that emerges from this sphere of desire and romance that is perhaps even more pervasive in the church than pornography. If you're stuck in pornography, Pastor Josh mentioned it, there is freedom and life for you ahead. Please seek out a pastor and seek help for that. I want to talk about another kind of destructive and harmful fantasy today. I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Um, I'm a home remodeler, and I generally work alone, and so I have the opportunity to just put on like 65-hour novels and just plug away. And my wife's always like, you read another massive tome this week? You know, I read three. You know, like I just have all day to just listen to novels, and I finally circled back around. I'd read Steinbeck years ago, and a couple of weeks ago, I'd never read East of Eden. And so I came upon East of Eden. You know, it's rather dark, (laughs) but I kind of am wired that way. And so in East of Eden, a couple of situations emerge that speak to the danger of this fantasy that I'm talking about. East of Eden is a recapitulation of Genesis 3 and 4, the fall of humanity, and the fallout between Cain and Abel. But it happens, it's set in the Salinas Valley of California in the early part of the 20th century. And the Adam character, the recapitulation of the original Adam, Adam Trask, believes himself to be in love with the Eve character, his wife Kathy, and he is smitten with her. He's overcome with devotion to her. He would have written love poetry to her in much the same way that the groom does in Song of Songs. But Adam Trask is so oblivious to who Kathy is. He's so unaware of who she is and the nature of their relationship that he believes everything is going along just fine 
right up until the moment that she shoots him. That's how out of touch he is with who she is and the nature of their relationship. And his son, Aaron, who is the able character in the story, follows almost directly in his father's footsteps. Aaron meets a young girl, Abra, when they're children, and they develop this young romance and begin to fashion a fairy tale of what it would be to live life together as they grow. But as they grow, Abra starts to realize that this fairy tale isn't enough. And Aaron will regularly write her poetry that makes her feel unseen, makes her actually feel condemned because she can't live up to the vision that he has of her. He's still living in the fairy tale, still living in the fantasy. He's not seeing reality. He's not participating in a real human relationship. His poetry is a vanity project. It's a proof to himself of his own goodness, of his own purity. For both these characters, for Adam and then for his son Aaron, they are in love with the idea of romance. They are in love with the fantasy of romance, with the idea of passion. They're not participating in the real thing. And so Abra eventually leaves Aaron for his brother Cal, the Cain character in the story. She gives up on this false love that Aaron is offering to her. This is all too common. Both these characters were unwittingly demanding that their significant other, that their woman, be something that she could never be, namely the fulfillment of their fantasy. That is a toxic way of thinking about a real relationship, and it will destroy yours. This is quite common in the church. And so I want to warn you, if you are married now or if you will be married someday, don't mistake marriage for something that it is not. Marriage is not a fantasy. It's not a dream. It's not a tool for meeting all of your needs. Marriage is a real relationship with a real person. It requires self-sacrifice and service and appointed, continual effort to make personal growth by both people involved in the marriage. And apart from these things, it will crumble. Or worse, grow stale and lifeless without you even knowing that it has. It's no dream. Of course, it is very good to speak highly of marriage, as the Song of Songs does. Marriage has gotten a bad rap from very zealous critics of it over, say, the past 60 years in the West. There's been, I think, fair to say, a systemic effort to dismantle the institution of marriage, to tear it down. And in our zeal as the church to defend the institution, I think at times we have overstated the case. I think at times we've made too much of marriage. 
We've elevated it into something that it can't be, into something that it can't sustain. So it's good that we're speaking well of it. It's good that we're defending it. It's dangerous when we turn it into a fantasy. Marriage is not for everyone. And it's not a necessity for a rich and fulfilling life. It's not a requirement. The invitation to drink deeply of romance within marriage, it's not unlike God's invitation to drink deeply of all earthly delights according to his order and his design. God is Lord of pleasure. He created pleasure and he filled the earth with sources of it. The earth is full of sources of pleasure, full of sources of delight, whether sex or food or drink or our own physical health or achievement or anything that pleases, God says, drink deeply of this according to my order, according to my design. Now, I want to be careful here because romance is a rich delight. And so for those who may not move into marriage at any point in their life, There is a cost. There is a loss in that that I want to recognize. But the cost is not so high as the lies of the culture would tell it. There is grief and sorrow in wanting marriage and not getting it, but there is not disillusionment nor despair on that road for you. You do not need marriage to define you. Romance has no power to build an identity for you. And the absence of the expression of it in your life cannot disassemble you. Who you are is not defined by your desires or the manifestation of them. You are much more than that. Much more. This is why the church historically has placed marriage in the category of a sacrament. A sacrament is a physical manifestation of an ultimate or spiritual reality. A sacrament allows us to participate by sensory life in something that is beyond our senses' capacity to notice. We partake of a sacrament every week here at Redemption City when we eat the bread and drink the wine. In so doing, we are not just participating in an abstraction. This idea that Jesus is within us, that his body and blood are ours, that he has co-mingled his person with ours, that he has physically united himself to us. No, we are actually experiencing that in our senses. We're tasting and seeing that Christ is in us that he is one with us. Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What was he saying in that? He's inviting us to participate in this sacrament that speaks to a higher spiritual reality. But in saying that, is he then saying that anyone who doesn't participate in the sacrament has no access to union with him? Certainly not. Is he saying that union with him is somehow dependent on the sacrament? Certainly not. 
Is he excluding anyone who may have suffered some ailment that doesn't allow them to swallow any longer from experiencing all of the richness and fullness of his union with them, of his rescue of them, of his love for them? Certainly not. The sacrament is a physical invitation to sense a spiritual reality, but the spiritual reality is not dependent on the sacrament. All of us are invited to drink deeply of what marriage points to, no matter whether we participate in the sacrament of marriage or not. The spiritual reality of union with Christ, of our oneness with him, of our marriage into him, is not dependent on our participation in the physical sacrament of earthly marriage. Make no mistake, you, people of God, are the bride of Christ. He remembers the day that he first saw you. When his father said, let us make man in our image, men and women according to our likeness. And Jesus said to his father, yes, and I will be one with them and I will serve them, and I will love them, and I will lay down my life for them, and I will give everything that I have to protect them and to pull them from danger and to be their savior and to be their groom and to be their Lord, and they will be mine, and they will be my people. This is the glory that the physical sacrament of marriage points to, and it is a glory that every member in the church is invited to drink deeply of. Whether you participate in marriage or not, you are invited to be a part of the bride of Christ. The church historically has placed marriage in this sacramental category to protect people from making the mistake of thinking that marriage in and of itself is the higher reality. It's not. Marriage is a physical manifestation of a reality beyond it. When the Song of Songs invites us to drink deeply of marriage, the invitation is not exclusively for those who are married. The invitation is to the whole church. Receive this gift of marriage. Uphold it. Honor it. Because it's leading us home. Whether you're married in this life or not, The gift of marriage is a sign to you. This is what you were in fact made for. You were made to be one with Christ, even as he is one with the Father. You were made to dwell with God, to participate in the triune God, to be lost in the Son such that you are living in the life of the Trinity experiencing the joy and union of the Trinity, to be one with God, to know him and be known by him, to be filled and animated with his very life, his heart, his passion, and to know the safety of his embrace and the romance of his voice. Marriage is a gift to us all, whether we are married in this life or not. If you're not to be married in this life, 
You know, if you simply don't find the right person, or if your marriage collapses for some unforeseen reason, or if you choose a vocation that leads you to remain single, or if you simply are not romantically disposed to someone of the opposite sex, whatever the reason might be for why you might not pursue marriage, you remain a member of the bride. And you're invited, called even, to uphold the institution of marriage in its rightful place with God's people. This is so important. The church is a reordering society. The world is full of disorder and chaos because we have taken all of the greatest pleasures that God has filled the world with and we have used them outside of his order and design and brought disorder and ruin into our lives and into the world. The church, for the sake of the world, is to be about the work of reordering the world as God made it. We're to be a reordering society. We're to receive the gifts that God gives as he gives them and uphold them in that order, design, and capacity. We're to put pleasure back in its rightful place, not by forbidding it and becoming a society of ascetic teetotalers or prudes, not at all, but participating in pleasure as God designed it, drinking as deeply as is possible because we are drinking of these pleasures in the way God designed them. When you ask something to be something that it is not, it actually loses its pleasure. It loses its savior. Ask any addict if they enjoy alcohol any longer. They don't enjoy a cocktail with friends. They inhale alcohol and pour it down a pit, a bottomless pit of unsatisfied longing. That is the disorder and chaos of sin. Because really, at the end of the day, there are only two kinds of gods. There's a false god who tells you that Your sensual pleasures are ultimate needs and leads you on the fool's errand of trying to satisfy yourself with more, 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 the bottomless pit. And then finally, that false god devours you, dismantles you, destroys you. Or the other kind of god, the true god, who tells you that sensual pleasures are not ends in themselves, that the physical realities of this world point to something higher, another world even. And this God finally is dismantled for you. You can either serve a God who ultimately will devour you or you can serve a God who lays down his life and says, feed on me, be nourished on me. The God who would devour you it will never be enough. What he offers, you'll always need more and more and more and never be satisfied. The God who lays down his life, the God who says, nourish yourself on my body, my blood. With him, he just gives more and more and more. And with every drink, 
you are satisfied all the more. For the sake of the world, the church is to be a society that worships that one true God and reorders the world under his design. Unmarried people may even be more important in that work of upholding marriage than our married people. Not participating in the institution and yet nevertheless upholding it and honoring it for what it is, a signpost to a higher reality. As for those of us who are married or will be married, which is about 85% of all people statistically, drink deeply. Marriage is so often maligned or caricatured in film as some kind of lifeless, stale, dead thing. Christians, may it not be so among us. Let's write love poetry. Let's do what God calls us to do. Participate in what God has made. Use the song of songs as a prototype for what it is to be in a real union between people. The groom says in verse 12 of chapter 4, you are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. This is the groom on his wedding night. He's extolling the sanctuary of marital union. He says it's a private garden. It's a hidden fountain. A marriage is a protected place. It's a sacred place where two people Pursue nakedness together. The nakedness of the marriage bed is only the beginning. Spiritual nakedness, intellectual nakedness, emotional nakedness. Marriage is the place where you are uncovered, where you are known, where you are seen, and ultimately where you are loved. It's a holy mystery. And there's safety in it because there's commitment and security and union. Those of you who are married, you can remember back, maybe you can't remember if it's been a long time, but when you first get married, all of the uncovering is so awkward. The physical uncovering is awkward. The emotional uncovering is awkward. But over the course of your marriage, awkwardness becomes intimacy. That is such a profound thing for the things that you're most kind of embarrassed about or even ashamed about to become delights. That's the mystery of what's happening here and it's all pointing us to something even more glorious. The bride responds to her groom in verse 16. Awake, north wind, rise up, south wind. Blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love. Taste its finest Fruits. The bride welcomes her groom into the mystery of being known. Come into this feast of the senses, she says. Smell, touch, taste. He does not need to be invited again. First verse of chapter 5 I have entered my garden, my treasure, my bride. I gather myrrh with my spices and eat honeycomb with my honey. I drink wine with my. Milk. The groom enters this sacrament and he drinks deeply. The right ordering of this desire allows him to enjoy it for what it truly is. 
rather than asking it to be more than it is. He doesn't need his bride to be a god who can satisfy his deepest needs. He just needs her to be her. His treasure, his honey, his sweet little thing. And how does this marriage scene close? How does this section close? With a chorus of people who are outside the marriage extolling the virtue of marriage, upholding the glory of marriage. The second half of verse 1 of chapter 5. Oh, lover and beloved, eat and drink. Yes, drink deeply of your love. The whole community honors and upholds what marriage is. They cry with the voice of God. Drink deeply. Last week, my wife and I went and saw a movie. It's called Father Stew. I recommend it to you. It's a really pretty good movie. We were on a date. It stars Mark Wahlberg as a washed-up boxer who moves to Hollywood in kind of a desperate attempt to become an actor. And he gets a day job in a supermarket. And one day, this astonishingly beautiful Hispanic girl walks into this market in California, and he is smitten. And he begins to pursue her immediately. He chases her down in the market, begins to talk to her, finds out that she's Catholic. She says to him, you know, I don't think you're really seeing the situation very well. And he says, how could I see anything? Your face is so bright. And she cracks, right? The first crack, right? Charming Mark Wahlberg. And he begins to win her. And she says, no, 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 this could never work because you're not baptized. And he says, oh, I thought you were going to say not Hispanic. Where's the water? I'll get in right now. And he enters into this Catholic tradition, much as I entered into the Christian tradition in pursuit of a lovely, smiling young lady. And over the course of the film, as events take place, he actually winds up foregoing marriage for the sake of becoming a priest. And the movie does a beautiful job of showing just how deeply he is able to drink, the richness of meaning that he experiences, even in the sorrow of letting marriage go. And my wife and I, we left that movie, we were driving off to dinner, and, or driving home, and, and we were talking about Mark Wahlberg and how charming he is, and my wife said, you know, you're pretty charming. And she says, that's pretty great, because I just get to enjoy that all the time. Well, (laughs) I'm no Mark Wahlberg. But do you suppose that those words, after 19 years of marriage, mean more now? Or they would have had they been said on a first date or a second date or a 19th date? Of course they mean more now. To be enjoyed, to be known, to enter into a deeper kind of relationship that just keeps on growing deeper. Marriage is worth fighting for, whether from within or without, knowing that we are all invited to the party. And he's going to pour the drinks. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your good gifts. We thank you that you have filled the world with things that would delight us, things that would please us. And we thank you for your direction, for your order and design that leads us into those delights in ways that we can see them for what they are. Lord, I pray for this church that we would indeed be a reordering society, that we would learn to 
press one another into that when we err, that we would uphold one another in your good order and design, that we would encourage one another in the sorrows and losses of those things that we don't participate in or don't get to enjoy. Lord, for the sake of the world, would this be a place that acknowledges your goodness and manifests it in everything we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.